Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, it's going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid, and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. And for those of you who have been here recently, you'll know we are doing a little mini-series on the book of Ruth, and we are coming to the end of the book of Ruth. It is the final two chapters today. Let me give you a brief recap of the action, and then how the story concludes. So Naomi is an Israelite. She has left uh, Israel, and uh, with her husband, Elimelech, has gone to a place called Moab because there was a famine, and in Moab, Elimelech has died and so has his two sons, leaving Naomi, a widow, with her two non-Jewish Moabites daughters-in-law, Orpah, who I always call Oprah, but her name is Orpah, and Ruth, two widows themselves. Now, Orpah decides to stay in Moab, whereas Ruth, despite Naomi saying, hey, don't stay in don't come with me, stay in Moab with your people, decides nevertheless to go with her widow mother-in-law back to Israel, a decision that she would expect means a worse life for her. However, having arrived in Israel, Ruth meets Boaz, who is the owner of some land, and uh, Ruth gleans some food for her and Naomi from Boaz's land, but Boaz happens to be a distant relative of Naomi. And as such, he is in a position to be a kingsman redeemer. What is a kingsman redeemer, I hear you ask? Very good question. Let me answer it. Now, a kingsman redeemer, it is unclear exactly where the tradition comes, but it's probably a kind of um, uh, extension of Levitical law, which basically says if some dude dies, leaving his land and his property untended, then a near relative can become the kingsman redeemer and take it all over, basically step into the dead man's shoes, take over the property so that it can um, earn money and look after the widows and the orphans of that dead man's household. So, Boaz is in a position to do that. But Naomi and Ruth concoct a plan. This is very exciting, isn't it? What they do is they decide that Ruth will slide into Boaz's threshing floor in the middle of the night. That's not a euphemism. She literally slides into his threshing floor in the middle of the night. But it is similar to sliding into someone's DMs and then putting a few kind of um, fruit and veg emojis in there. It's basically saying, are you up? Which does not mean, are you awake? Who knew? Everyone apart from me uh, is the answer to that question. Anyway, so she does that, slides into his threshing floor, And this is um, incredibly uh, kind of um, forward and risky of Ruth. But it's not inappropriate. But it is being very brazen. 
there's a lot of sexual tension. There's a little element of a garment and some feet, but nothing inappropriate. And it has the desired response from Boaz, who, as ever, is gracious and kind as he is throughout, and he agrees to become Naomi's kinsman redeemer and in turn to take Ruth as his wife. So far, so satisfyingly soap opera-ish. But there is a twist in this episode of Days of Their Ancient Israelite Lives. There is another Kingsman Redeemer, dun, 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 who has first refusal on Naomi's property, dun, 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 and he must be consulted beforehand, dun, dun, dun. So, Boaz, will he do the right thing? Won't he do the right thing? He does the right thing. He consults the other kinsman redeemer. He doesn't have a name, this kinsman redeemer. He's a tall, dark stranger in the shadows. Let's call him Rupert. For some reason, he's a sort of Hugh Grant figure in my mind. So Rupert is presented with this proposition. Are you going to become the kinsman redeemer? He sort of bumbles along in his Rupert-like way and goes, yes, I will take on Naomi's land. But then Boaz, clever, cunning Boaz, goes, oh, great. By the way, I forgot to tell you, there's also this woman, Naomi. She's quite a handful. It's fair to say, slides into people's threshing floors. Oh, and also she's a Moabitess. She's not Jewish. She's a sort of mongrel-type person. And she's young, so you're probably going to need to look after her for quite a long time, and she might bear you children, which you'll also look after. And so at that point, Rupert goes, ah, been a mistake. Actually, over to you. I don't want it. It's fine. You go ahead. So Boaz redeems Naomi's household and marries the Moabite immigrant, Ruth. Now, of course, all of this can sound a little bit backward. It can sound a little bit patriarchal. It can sound a little bit like, oh, do we really need to listen to these stories about women being treated like pieces of property? Do we really care about those sorts of things? We would never treat people like that now. We would never expect women to have to do all these things in order to have any sort of status in life. And of course, that's, that's right and that's good. We have pro progressed in some ways. But to do so and then miss all the other points of the story is actually to miss out on things that are culturally universal, things that can speak to us right here, right now. So I want to suggest, yes, let's park our, oh, they're so backward type feelings and actually go for what this story is really about, which is very relevant to all of us now. The culturally transcending point the one which is as relevant and potent today as it was then, is what I want to concentrate on today. Hannah mentioned it last week. It is this term, hesed. Now, hesed is a Hebrew word, which is usually translated as kindness or loyalty, but it is far more powerful than that, far more potent than that. It refers to the care that one person can show another person with whom they are in relationship but specifically the care of rescuing them, of taking them out of dire straits, of their desperate needs being met by this powerful, potent, loving kindness from someone else, this person who is uniquely qualified to do it. Hesed is not weak. It's not feminine, whatever that means. In fact, Boaz and, who is a man, and Ruth, who is a woman, both show hesed. It's risky and extraordinary 
and courageous and true. At this the core of this book, this short little book, is Hesed. Hesed displayed from humans to one another, but also kind of in the background, the Hesed of God towards humanity in general, which we will look at in a minute. But what is it and how does it work? Well, firstly, Hesed is extraordinary. We, as a family, uh, went to uh, the cinema yesterday, Friday, to watch Black Widow. That is a very, very good film. You should watch that film lots of times. It's really good. Florence Pugh steals the show. She's amazing. I loved it. I, want to see, I just want to see it now, apart from there's a football game to watch. Uh, but anyway, after the film, it's not about the film, we were walking out, and uh, there was a very polite gentleman by the elevator who was basically asking for some money to buy some food. And there's a group of us who'd kind of uh, arrived at the elevator at the same time, and the normal sort of thing proceeded. Some people were like, oh, I'm sorry, I haven't got any money. Other people were like, here's a few dollars, those sorts of things. Both of which reactions, I think we would all agree, are kind of normal, right? You could make good arguments for them both being the appropriate thing to do. The Hesed reaction is saying to that gentleman, tell me your name. I'd like to take you in my car, get in my car, and then we're going to go and drive, and we're going to buy some clothes, and we're going to buy some food, and then you're going to come around for dinner, and I'm going to cook you whatever you like, and I'm going to get to know you, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to find out about your story, and I'm going to work out ways in which we can do everything we can to help you. Who are you? Because Hesed is extraordinary. Orpah, Ruth's sister-in-law, who stays in Moab, there is no criticism of her from the narrator. She's just doing the right thing. She's just doing the normal thing, totally fine. Similarly, Rupert, the unnamed kinsman redeemer, there is no criticism of him. He does what is right. He does what is normal. He is well within his rights to do what he does. But Boaz, and particularly Ruth, are extraordinary in their behavior. Ruth gives up all the safety of her home for a widow who has nothing, who she owes nothing to, who tells her, no, stay where you are. Because Ruth knows what Hesed is, and Hesed is extraordinary. Boaz does something extraordinary. It would have been fine for him to say, actually, no thanks, try someone else. Now, Hesed is extraordinary, and obviously anything that is extraordinary cannot become everyday or ordinary, otherwise it stops being extraordinary. So can I say to us as followers of Jesus, who are called to acts of hesed, don't beat ourselves up if we're not doing extraordinary things the whole time, because if we're doing extraordinary things the whole time, they become ordinary. However, what the challenge is to each one of us is, when are we open to doing anything ever extraordinary for other people? Are we open to it right now? Are we open to it tomorrow, today, later on? Because this is the way that our extraordinary God works. He loves it when we do ridiculously over-the-top, stupidly generous things. Because it's reflective of his ridiculously over-the-top, reckless character. When we just go, hey, by the way, everyone, I'm buying all the drinks in the bar. Or, hey, by the way, I'm going to do whatever you need for, for today. 
Whatever you need, I will do it for you. Ridiculous, over-the-top hesed. Secondly, hesed is risky. Ruth risks everything. Firstly, in traveling back with Naomi, and secondly, by being extremely forward and rather sexually provocative to Boaz. As a foreigner and as a foreign widow, she runs the risks of being beaten, ostracized, destitute, even killed. Rupert risks nothing. Boaz risks his livelihood and his reputation because Hesed is risky. Uh, John Wimber, who's a church leader that we've been always quite influenced by, used to say that faith is spelt R-I-S-K, which I have found to be very true. And my question to all of us today then is how risky currently is your life? By risky, I do not mean silly or frivolous or irresponsible. That is not the risk of faith we're talking about because anyone can be frivolous and silly and ridiculous. Faith actually always is a response to what God has already done. It comes from us, we exercise it, we move it places, but it comes from trusting in what God has already done. So how risky is your life right now? How much does he have to come through for you because of what he has said? Ruth gives herself in this extraordinary, risky, loving kindness to Naomi with nothing to rely on apart from God, a God she barely knows anything about. So it doesn't matter whether you've been a Christian all your life, whether you're just a Christian, whether you don't actually know whether it's completely true, but you're just holding on, grabbing on by your fingernails. You can still be risky with that amount of faith. It's why Jesus says, do you have faith as small as a mustard seed? You can't get much smaller than that. That's enough. I love it. Brilliant. So don't worry if your faith is small right now. It's enough. When uh, we decided to plant this church, however many moons ago it was, through various different iterations, we were in wet, damp, gray, depressed London. And whilst we prayed and planned about this um, thing and we dreamed about what it was going to be, I have to tell you, I was very excited. I thought, I love London, but this is going to be a massive adventure. It's going to be so good. I'm sure there'll be some challenges now and again, but it will be great. It will be in L.A. It will be sunny. It will be wonderful. I was that naive. But we were excited. What I hadn't banked on was an 18-month delay on our visa before we'd even left the country. So I'd left my job. I'd worked for 15 years in a church being a pastor there. We'd rented out our house. We'd taken our three kids out of school because we were expecting to go. And nothing happened for another 18 months. We moved house 27 times in that 18-month period, basically uh, finding anywhere that we could stay, and now and again staying at my mum. My mum listens to all of these talks, so thank you so much, my mum. During that time, it's the lowest I've ever been. But it was also the closest I've ever been to God. Mainly because there was nowhere else to turn. I was depressed. I was angry. I was sad. But it was the closest I've ever been to him. 
not, you know, hey, this is amazing. I can't wait to worship and pray yet again. I really found praying and worshiping incredibly difficult. I didn't want to do it. But I was close to him in a way I've never been close to him before or since because I had to be. Because we'd risked a whole lot and there was nowhere else to turn. Hesed, our extraordinary risky loving kindness to one another, to other people, risks a lot. It can risk our reputation, it can risk our livelihood, it can risk what people think of us. But it does so trusting that whatever happens, God will have our back. And finally, Hesed is honorable. Despite all the sexual tension that I have related of Ruth's slide into Boaz's threshing floor, there is no sense of impropriety. In fact, if there were, it would actually make what Ruth's doing not really hesed at all. It would make it her trying to control the situation. Her, um, in the vernacular of our time, doing a spot of gold digging. Her going after things that she knows that she can manipulate, trying to take control of the whole thing through her body, through her um, ability to flirt, all those sorts of things. And so it makes it much less self-serving, much less extraordinary, sorry, much more self-serving, much less extraordinary, much less risky, in fact. But she does it without any sense of impropriety. Both she and Boaz act honorably throughout. Boaz risks losing everything to Rupert because it's the right thing to do. During that time that Hannah and I and the kids were waiting to try and plant this church, um, we were actually put in touch with a very nice guy, influential very wealthy um, American who'd sort of helped some churches in the parts. And because we were going to America, I thought probably the whole of America is exactly the same. Little did I know. Uh, this guy might be able to help us plant a ch church in L.A. He wasn't from L.A. And uh, we sat down, and he very kindly gave me some time we'd never met before. He said, um, we started this conversation with, do you know the most valuable thing that a church owns? And I thought, I'm pretty sure it's Jesus, uh, but I have a feeling that's not the answer you're going to give. I said, I'm pretty sure it's Jesus. I have a feeling you want to convince me it's something else. And he went, it's your non-profit status. I went, okay, still think it's Jesus, but, you know, have a go. And he then spent quite a long time telling me all the ways in which, because churches have non-profit status, they can partner with developers and do these various tax things where no one pays any tax, everyone makes lots of money, and you can build big churches for nothing. And he told me this for a while, and then at the end I went, thank you so much for your time. The most valuable thing uh, that the church has is Jesus, but I do appreciate everything else that you have told me. I went back with Hannah uh, and to sort of discuss this, and Hannah being Hannah, and was like, yeah, I don't think we want anything to do with that. I was probably a bit tempted. 
because really probably what was on offer was, hey, this could sort everything out. We decided to say thank you, but no thank you. I'm very pleased with that decision. Now, I don't want to cast any aspersions on this person, and this isn't to blow my own, own trumpet. I'm compromised in so many other ways. But I was pleased not to be compromised in that way. We are all confronted, aren't we, by choices daily to do the honorable thing or to do something else. Whether it's fiddling some taxes, flagging when we've been undercharged at the till or not, stopping at stop signs when pedestrians want to cross. Like, do they not know this is Los Angeles? What are you doing? Get in a car. Do we do the honorable thing or the not honorable thing? We're confronted by it the whole time, aren't we? Hesed is doing the extraordinary, risky, honorable thing. Because ultimately, Hesed does what it does irrespective of any consequences. Because it's rooted in faith faith in the one true God. And when we trust God, when we actually trust him, when we don't just sing about him in those lovely songs about how we give ourselves to him, and yes, I'm going to give it all to you, right? yes, yeah, 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 right. When we actually trust him, that's when we are able to give ourselves away recklessly, extraordinarily, riskily, sacrificially honorable, for the sake of others, knowing that he's got us, that he really does have us, that he will defend and he will look after us, that even when we lose, we win. Ruth, as I said, only knew a very little, little bit about this God. We, because of the time that we live in, know infinitely more. He has a name, his name is Jesus. He's shown the whole world what he looks like. And when we actually read the book of Ruth through the light of Jesus, that's when we see that it's not just a nice kind of soap opera-y story, but nor is it this moral tale saying, be more like Ruth, be more like Boaz. It's neither of those things, really. Because actually, it is written as a foretext. It's like a foreshadowing. It's saying, this is the origin story. Ruth is the hero of the origin story, but not the story proper. She's a foretaste of what is to come. Because life is not just about humans showing kindness to one another. If it, would be, if it was, we would just be on our own, wouldn't we? And how exhausting would that be, just trying to love one another all the time? I've been married for a number of years, had kids for a number of years. I love my wife. I love my kids. It's quite hard always being kind to them, though. I'll just let you know. If it were just a story about us showing kindness to one another, it would be exhausting. It would be too difficult. We couldn't do it. Let me read the end of the story. This is from chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, 
Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons. Quite a thing to say at the time. Maybe even now. Has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon, my favorite name in the whole Bible. You should be called Salmon, for you shall swim upstream to procreate. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. Now, I know a whole load of names are a little bit boring, but the point is this. As we've often said, the best way to understand the Old Testament, in fact, the only true way to understand the Old Testament is in the light of Jesus. We read him back into the whole story because the whole story of Israel, the whole story of the Old Testament is this. We are awaiting. We are longing for. We are pregnant with expectation for this one person who will save us, who will right all and every wrong that has ever been. We are looking forward to the one on whom God's Spirit will descend and never, ever depart. We are waiting for the one in the line of David who will change everything once and for all and forever. As wonderful as the story of Ruth is, it's not nearly as wonderful as the story of the boy born in a stable. So just to end, at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, he records a similar genealogy to the one here at the end of Ruth. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Skipping forward to my favorite, Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, who was mother of Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, who was mother, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Ruth included once again. Now, Matthew does not have to include Ruth. Luke, in his gospel, in his genealogy, doesn't include any women. In fact, it was very abnormal to include any women at all because in both Hellenistic and Jewish ancient thought, women didn't endorse anything, and genealogies were like resumes. They were the ways in which people were endorsed to one another, and women's testimony wouldn't even hold up in court. So there's no point putting women in your genealogy. In fact, it weakens it, but Matthew chooses to put women. Ruth, for one, and Tamar, Rahab, and Uriah's wife, for three others. All gender outsiders. Three of whom were racial outsiders too. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, as we know, are all Gentiles. Not allowed in the temple, racially unclean, not able to experience the presence of God. They are mongrels, for want of a better phrase. Listed, though, as endorsements on Jesus, the King of Kings, resume. But not just gender and racial outsiders, moral outsiders too. Rahab, there on Jesus' resume, she's a prostitute. Tamar pretends to be a prostitute in order to sleep with father-in-law Judah, 
after having married, been married to not just one, but two of his sons. None of these people needed to be included, but Matthew chooses to because he wants to include all the sordid details. Even David, Jesus' greatest ancestor, is not described as David, Jesus' greatest ancestor. He's described like this, verse 6, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Very specific. Uriah was one of David's greatest friends and allies. Thick as thieves, defended him on all sides. But then after David becomes king, he has Uriah killed because things have got a little bit tricky, what with David now sleeping with Uriah's wife Bathsheba, who then gives birth to Solomon. Now Matthew, by not mentioning Bathsheba's name, is not slighting her. He's making a point. David, the horrible snake. Gender, racial, moral outcasts. The law of Moses precluded these people from the presence of God. Jesus is owning them. As he owns you. Because he's not ashamed of anyone. He's not ashamed of you. He never was and he never will be. God's kindness shown in Jesus is extraordinary. He welcomes everyone in, and it's risky. Because after all, what sort of bet are you? If someone were to ask you, should I bet on you, never ever letting Jesus down, what is your answer? I'll tell you, no, you should not. That would be a terrible bet. Does Jesus know you and me we're terrible bets? Absolutely. He knows we are the worst bets in history. What we can be sure of is letting him down. But knowing this full well, he bets everything himself to death on us. Why? Because this is extraordinary love. But so too, that knowing when he shows this love to us, this power to us, this extraordinary, risky, proper, good and true love that changes the whole world, it changes you. It turns us upside down and inside out. The only way that we might be people who can show hesed to one another is knowing that we have received it over and over again, once from him for all time, and then continually through his spirit, poured out, pressed down, and flowing over so that we might course with hesed, so that it might flow from us to one another. This is what I want to challenge us as a church with. Let us be a church marked by extraordinary, risky, good and proper, self-giving love to one another, particularly in a city like this. Is there a city more concerned, not with everyone else, but ourselves? I don't think so. I've been to a few. But imagine the impact of going, but there's a community of people 
that says what matters most in the world is not me, but you. Which is not to say that I don't matter. I know I matter more than you could ever imagine because I matter to him. But this is why I want you to know that you matter. How extraordinary would that be? Those who are forgiven much, love much. How much do you know yourself to be of infinite value, completely forgiven and loved by him? The truth is, we all leak his spirit. We all leak that knowledge. And so we need to be filled up over and over again. It's why we do church. It's why you come here. So, what we're going to do is we're going to take communion together. And what I want to suggest is that we do two things as we take communion together. Firstly, receive again the love of your Father in heaven for you. That says you matter more than anyone else in this room. He's not interested in anyone else. None of them, just you. Receive it from him. Know that he understands everything that you're going through. He really does understand everything you're going through. And it breaks his heart. All instances of pain and grief and loss and hurt. Receive it from him. And then allow yourself to believe that you can be someone who passes it on to other people. Good? Good. And then we'll pray for people at the end, as we always do.